It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I am excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me on the show is Brent Adamson, Principal Executive Advisor at CEB, and I think most of you are familiar with him as co-author of the best-selling books, The Challenger Sale, and the, more recently, The Challenger Customer. Brent, welcome to Accelerate. Thank you, Andy. Happy to join you. So take a minute, introduce yourself, maybe tell us uh, how you got into the sort of sales business, if you will. <laughs> sure, I'd be happy to. You know, the, the, the one thing, Andy, I tell you is my personal story is frankly just uh, utterly uninteresting. Uh, the, my wife would be the first to tell you that, I think. But the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that probably has nothing to do with your story. <laughs> so what I often tell people is, you know, it's more about the message than the messenger. So, but, but very briefly, where the message and the story and where, it was where I reside work and where the story came out of is an organization called um, CEB, formerly known as the Corporate Executive Board. Uh, and our we're global company offices in Washington, D.C., or just outside of D.C. in Arlington, which is where I happen to be sitting right now. Um, and it's sort of our mission in life to, to understand as best as we possibly can what does world-class selling and marketing look like, and particularly for at least the work I've been doing recently in the, in the business-to-business space. So we work with heads of sales, heads of marketing, the Fortune 500, the global 1,000 around the world, just doing a lot of research, a lot of interviews, a lot of analysis, a lot of data crunching. Um, just to try to understand what are the questions we should be asking but aren't, what are the answers we should be finding but haven't, just looking for that different angle on the world to understand the counterintuitive aspects of the way things work that we wouldn't have anticipated or figured out had we not gone and done all that work, and then we share that back with our our clients. So I, I realized, by the way, Andy, there's a certain irony to the guy who invented there. You know, we created this idea of lead to, don't lead with, for me to start talking about our companies. So maybe I'll stop there. But that's that's kind <laughs> that's of who we you're are. Not, you're not what, pitching what here. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> so yeah, I just got through the reading the uh, the challenger customer, and there's some really interesting takeaways. You know, as I was sort of thinking about because I spent a good chunk of my career selling large, complex communication systems to some of the world's largest companies. And it's I sort of walk away from the impression, sort of saying, well, gosh, not that we're necessarily doing it wrong now, but we've been doing it wrong all along. <laughs> and, and it, you know, sort of starting with this premise, you know, the, everybody in the sort of vernacular these days, everybody talks about the 5.4 stakeholders, you know, that sort of, you guys have done a good job of sort of getting that into the, the ether. Yeah. But it's not that there haven't always been multiple stakeholders, but I but I think that you know now we talk and you talk more about the diversity, you know, the makeup and the the composition of the stakeholders really demand a different sales approach. It, it you know it does, and it's um it's really interesting because when when I uh, by the way real quick on the five point four, you know, we as you mentioned, we've kind of branded the heck out of that. I mean, it's a real number it's based on a lot of data but we reran that analysis here and found that in the last 18 months the number's gone from 5.4 to 6.8 um, <laughs> so I, I don't know what to do anymore it's like we but we put a stake in the ground around 5.4 but more on the 5.4 and who they are in just a second yeah but, well no we'll, we'll get to that that's i've exactly, got some questions right? about that but but you know if i think about your perspective i agree with this. so i've been here at cb going actually back to your original question i've been here at cb for the better part of 13 years now um working in that capacity that i described with the teams here trying to you know understand sales and marketing. It was funny because when I joined the company in 2003, the play that we were all running in sales 
and B2B sales was largely based on the corner office. Do you remember those days? Mm-hmm. Right? It's like the, the whole idea was if we could claw our way up to the C-suite, if we could get into the corner office, that's where the real deals get done. Right? That's where so that, Nirvana is. It, right? So, so, you know, and particularly in this world where we're all shifting to solution selling and we're, we're selling these bigger solutions with the bigger price points and have more strategic impact on our customer organization. So surely if you want to sell that kind of stuff, you got to sell the veto. You got to sell to the corner office, the the C suite, and so everything that the, all the questions we were getting, all the research we were doing in say 2003 to 2008 was around that. How do I get in front of that senior decision maker? What's interesting though, Andy, is about 2008. So it's been a while, really. It's when we first started hearing the rumblings of this this consensus idea. It was a a, a very uh, a, well. There was a global head of sales for a very well known company, like a Fortune 15 company, big sales organization, does multi billion dollar contracts. His name is David. And we were on the phone with David back in about 2008. And he said, Brent, he said, are you guys seeing this? He said, it seems to me that, that what we're finding more often than not is we run the sales book, you know, that we run the playbook as we've been running it for years, mm-hmm. the playbook that's always worked for us. And we claw our way into the corner office and yet it doesn't get the, de- it's, it's no longer sufficient because that person needs to get sign off and approval from all of these other people. And there's just more people involved and we're finding that we well, have to get them all on board to get the deal done. And that's when, that was the first inkling that uh, of the avalanche of consensus that was to come across because shortly thereafter of course the economy collapses everyone becomes risk averse and yet at the same time this the deals that we're all looking to do become that much more complex and touch more parts of the customer organization you fast forward about three or four years and all of a sudden everybody's facing this problem that the that you know and and the, the first thing we saw in our data around this was really interesting right about that same time as we went out we did a survey i don't remember i don't think this is in the book uh, but the um uh, we went out and did a survey of senior decision makers uh, early on, and we've corroborated this a number of times since, asking what is it that you're looking for in a supplier? What what is a, what are the attributes of a supplier solution that would lead you to choose that solution over others on behalf of your organization? And the number one thing that senior decision makers turned out to care about more than anything else was widespread support for that solution across their organization. And that's what got us to real – that was a – that was a sit up and take notice moment right around 2009, 2010. That well, and you there's, do, there's you something do, going on. Right. And you do reference that in the book that, yeah, more than the solution, it's the buy in within the organization that's, that's really critical. It's, it's sort of interesting for me because I, I, um, I published my first book in, in 2011, end of 2011. And I, I have a chapter in there that I call Sell Low. And, you know, based on my experience selling large, complex systems, we we're always startups competing against the big guys selling these yeah. systems. But, that's what we sort of took that strategy. We we took the stakeholder approach because we figured that it was too late to get to the C suite because the other guys probably had them already. Yeah. So we we went in as low as we could to the most responsible, lowest responsible level, I call it, and and built consensus there. And maybe it's because we were selling in places outside the United States or maybe culturally they're more consensus consensus oriented, but but that was an extremely effective strategy. I mean, that was sort of the core of what I, I preached to people. So I thought it was really interesting to see that uh, 5.4 and the diversity of those stakeholders. You know, I think where that particularly works well is in software or anything you're selling sort of a per seat basis any or any other sort of a uh, sales model or strategy that allows for that land and expand sort of approach, right? We'll start small. We'll do the pilot. We'll, we'll go from there. Exactly. And- uh, the more that that is um, uh, consistent with your strategy, the more that that play is available to you to start low. Um, at some point or another, the if you're going to get to the expand part of land and expand, um, you're you're going to work your way up in the organization. But hopefully, at that point, uh, you know, with credibility, with a, a track record, with a proven business case inside the organization, that's going to allow you to do that. Um, 
The one thing, if I may, though, Andy, that we found about this consensus thing is we continued to study it that really got our attention that I think is really fascinating is, um, you know, this first indication in 2010, uh, when we talked about, you're right, so we talked about in the book about sort of widespread support across my organization. We thought of it back then largely as a numbers problem. And that's how it was originally articulated to us by David way back when. It was like, I've just seen all these people I haven't seen before. There's just a lot of them. What we've come to appreciate, as you hinted at a little earlier, is that the, it's not just a, a different in a difference in degree. So the consensus problem, we, we were asking about two years ago, is this consensus problem the same one we faced for the last eight years? It's just it's gotten bigger, or is it different? So is it difference in degree or difference in kind? And we think it's different in kind because it's not just the numbers problem that on average customer sells us are 5.4 or now 6.8 individual mm-hmm. stakeholders in a, in a purchase. It is this diversity problem that that as the, the solutions that we offer our customers now uh, will are specifically designed to offer more value across a broader range of people and stakeholders and end users and functions in the end customer organization, it stands to reason that all those different people are going to want to have a say in the purchase of that solution. As it gets bigger, more expensive, the CFO or someone in finance that can be involved, as it, as it takes on this, IT, uh, you know, if it becomes IT enabled, which is what everything is today, IT is involved. As it, as, so that gets into data, which brings in the legal team, which brings in procurement uh, as well. And so it's this diversity problem because each one of those different people, whether it's 5.4 or 6.8, comes to the table with that different set of priorities, a different set of criteria that they consider what they're trying to achieve. And that group somehow has to sit around the table and actually find agreement on what they all want to do. And that turns out to be really hard. Well, yeah, for as you talk about with that diversity, one of the key challenges is it actually lowers the probability of a decision ever being made. Well, or, yeah, or, or put it a different way, it actually raises the probability that a decision is going to be made, but that decision is likely to be, let's study Status quo, right. Right, status quo. That's exactly. or, or as small as possible, which, by the way, if it is, well, let's just study this a little bit or let's just pilot it. Again, if your strategy is land and expand or sell low, it is, they're actually not in conflict, right? They actually plays pretty well in this environment where if the only thing that that very diverse group can agree on is to move cautiously and you have a cautious sales approach of land, then expand, that may actually work. But what we're finding for most of our member companies that we serve their aspirations are well beyond what that group is uh, able to actually uh, decide on uh, left to their own devices. Right. So, you know, this diversity becomes key. The diversity then also seems like, and maybe to a point you made before to about uh, 5.4 in this diversity is there was a study, somebody quoted some results from me recently that uh, Gartner's done saying that uh, 72% of IT-related decisions are no longer made by IT. You know, in, in big companies, right? So it's it's the user organizations themselves that are now driving those decisions. You know, it, it's, it's absolutely right. So, in fact, a lot of them are now made by marketing, which is really interesting. And, you know, we've uh, recently launched a whole separate practice for MarTech executives or MarTech investments, so marketing technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and because, again, the solutions, and we're all doing this on purpose, right? What's interesting is, uh, these are conscious strategic choices that companies are making to sell broader based solutions that offer greater value to the customer organization. Because if you don't, all you've got is an individual service or product that can be e- easily replicated and commoditized. So you go down this road for all the right strategic reasons of offering your customer more value. 
But as the scope and the reach of that value continues to expand its footprint across the customer organization, it's naturally going to draw in all of those different people who want to have a say in what gets bought. And so it's a it's a well-intended solution to a different problem. That's that. It's like be careful what you wish for, though, because it's actually then on the back end created this new this whole separate problem that's really uh, forcing us all to. It's causing us all to to, to struggle. Well, and, and it still seems like sort of the. You describe ultimately the challenge your customers is really a buying problem more so than a selling problem, though it is it is both. It, it, yep. And and that um, yeah, you talk about the one in three problem is that the customers seem less willing to pay for the value that they did before. So you may have a compelling business case and delivering lots of value, but the customer having said that said, "Oh, great! Now we're going to go bid this out to two other people." And so yeah. you, know, you always end up competing on price at the end of the day. That's exactly right. It's so maddening, right? And and what's interesting is that the logical solution to this problem actually makes things worse, which is which always makes for a good story, if nothing else. But you know, day to day selling is really bleeping frustrating, right? Because no, yeah. What what'll happen is, and because this whole problem is exacerbated, of course, by something we've talked about in other uh, publications, which is the fact that your customers are now able to learn on their own and do the research on their own. That's the that big blue arrow, the fifty seven percent number we talk about in this book as well, which is, on average, customers tell us they're about fifty seven percent of the way through a purchase process prior to proactively picking up the phone or reaching out through email to a supplier or sales rep to get their input on what they're doing. Which, which we're going to talk about later because that number infuriates lots of people. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. By the way. We, that's, that's also something we continue to study. We find that number to be pretty stable. Our la- our latest data just came in about four weeks ago, and it's about fifty five percent. So plus or minus two percent is it's uh, it's about the same, which right. is, tells you in a B two B sale, and at least a complex B two B sale, which is what we're measuring. At some point, your customer probably does need to talk to you. The question is, what have they already figured out before that conversation happens? Oh yeah, and the the shape of the funnel at that point is much different than it is otherwise. Compl- that's right. Well, that, yeah, that's, that's sort of interesting, that, that uh, 57%. So, I mean, you brought that up, so let's sort of jump into that. So, that number drives people nuts. So, that there's been other, and I personally, I believe that's the case. I mean, my experience has shown that to be the case, and having been the case for a long time, even before the, <laughs> the internet started, is, is why, why are people so upset about that? Well, <laughs> yeah, there, there are some people that aren't upset about that. Now, for why example... Not? Uh, well, no, but the groups that you here's here's an interesting group that isn't upset about that, and I mean this with respect. But the core performing sales rep, um, who lives and breathes in the other forty three percent, and this is a large part of many organizations' sales force, is the sales reps who sell to what we call established demand versus emerging demand. Right? The, effectively, the, the really unfair way to call this, uh, uh, to refer to this, would be order takers. Right? right. So, but right. essentially, it's like it's like the phone rang and they asked me for a bid. It's like the deal practically fell in my lap. But but to your earlier point, it's not that this is bad business per se in the sense that you may potentially still sell something, but you're going to sell it at a highly compressed margin, at, effectively at commoditization prices or commodity prices, which is that's the thing that really is driving our members crazy is not that they're not selling, but they're not selling at the margins they need to to drive the growth, uh, the kind of growth that they'd expected. And that really is the byproduct of, of uh, this challenge. Because what will happen, you, you mentioned, and just real quickly, this one of three idea, which is really, uh, that's what's so maddening about this. Because what happens in this world is your customers learning on their own. 
what they do is they establish what we've come to call a minimum threshold of performance. So they do their due diligence, they do their research, whether it's on your website or from peers or trade shows or wherever it might be. And as a result of trying to figure out what it is that they're trying to do and how they're going to solve that particular problem, they say, all right, we're going to, we need this kind of solution. And that solution, whatever we, whatever we buy and wherever we buy it from, has to meet these criteria. And it's that process that really gets us all in trouble on the supplier side because they're setting that minimum threshold of performance and they can now articulate better than they ever could in the past what exactly it is that they want. So now at that 57%, when they call you, they can lay it all out in detail. And again, if you're a core performing rep, it's like they told me exactly what they need. They made it so easy for me. <laughs> but, but what's interesting in this world is that you, 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 this is where, as a rep, um, you can get so excited because your reaction might be, hey, they've laid out everything that they want. They to- I didn't have to discover anything. They told me what they need. And you know what? Good news. Not only can we meet their needs, we can exceed them. So in every dimension <laughs> that they want, we can actually do a little bit better. We can delight our customer across all the things that they think are important. So that's where we, we pour all our energy in sales and marketing into selling, telling our customers, we know that's what you want. And not only can we do that, we can do it a little bit better, at which point they will effectively say, yeah, we know that's why you're one of the three companies we invited to participate in this bidding process. And we love your solution and we think it's better and we want it. But the other two guys are, are are cheaper and they're good enough. So if we can get your better solution at their lower price, we're good to go. And that's the commoditization trap. That's the one of three where you're one of the three always invited to bid, but you always wind up getting commoditized anyway, even in a world where you are acknowledged by your customer to be better. Well, and, and that's so what a, a question about this good enough paradigm, though, and this is, this is uh, something that triggered my interest when I was reading that, is that you know, this idea of this good enough decision, I believe, originated with Herbert Simon, the Nobel Prize winner economist who studied this whole thing, came up with this paradigm of, you know, the satisficers and the maximizers, you know, two yeah. different decision types. And satisficers are, you know, they'll they'll gather information until they meet their basic requirements and they make the good enough decision. And so, but what you're not saying, I think, in the challenger customer is that people that don't make the good enough decision doesn't necessarily mean that they're maximizers, that they're going to exercise every vendor to the nth degree to make sure they're making absolutely the best decision. That, that's right. And, you know, to, to extrapolate somewhat perhaps unfairly to both that research and our research, but but nonetheless, it's fun to play with these metaphors and think about what they mean. Um, you know, there's, there's a phrase that you hear a lot in um, – uh, in particularly in marketing and B2B marketing right now, which is referred to not uh, by some not as B2B marketing, business to business marketing, but rather B2P marketing, Correct, which is business right. to people marketing. And the whole idea is this acknowledgement that, you know, it, it, yes, it's companies, but at the end of the day, companies don't buy things. It's people that buy things, uh, which is true. So we need to understand those people. And if that were true, then we'd need to know whether you're a satisficer or a, a maximizer, all that kind of stuff, right? But the thing that we've come to appreciate in all this consensus work is it's not – so in, in a business-to-business sale, it's not companies that buy things but the people that do, yes. But it's also not people that buy things but groups of them that do. And when you start putting that group dynamic on top of everything else, you start looking at what happens when those individuals, whether they be satisficers or maximizers, you put them in a group of 5.4 or 6.8. All of a sudden, the group dynamic is such that their inability to find common ground other uh, is, uh, is difficult other than – and a satisficing sort of perspective. Again, good I don't want right, to put words into right. other people's research, but I think that's part of what's going on. Yeah, well, part of it, though, too, I think is, and be interesting because you guys don't, I didn't really see this addressed in the book, is that you know part of the aspect of the satisficer maximizer is also return on time invested. I mean, the part of that decision to make a good enough 
you know, to make the good enough decision is based on, you know, I can invest more time, but I'm not going to get something that's substantially better. They'll give me a good return on that additional time I invest in researching it. So, so it's on that point, this, this is where this stuff gets even more interesting. And this is, this is beyond the scope of the book. So keep an eye out for, um, if all goes well, January of Harvard Business Review, I'll, we'll have our next article there, where we sort of go the next step uh, from what we learned in the book. And, and just to give you a flavor of this is here's an interesting question. So to your point, Andy, the, um, the max, you know, it's like maximizing the return on effort. <laughs> mm-hmm. What is the, what is the one thing for a company that's really, really, really hard to do? It turns out one of the things, at least for a company that's really, 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 really hard to do is to buy stuff. And, 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 and here's a thought experiment. I'd love for you to try this. Anyone else listening to the podcast to try this sometimes. It's the next time you're talking to anyone involved in, in any kind of leadership position in a B2B organization, simply ask them to go on a thought exercise with you and ask them, I want you to think back across the last 12 to 18 months of a purchase that you made in your organization of a relatively larger complex solution. Maybe it's an IT solution. Maybe it's a personnel management solution. Maybe it's some sort of, you know, for marketers, I might ask about the purchase of a CRM system or a marketing automation system. And they say, I'd like you to think about all the different people that were involved. Think about the challenges you ran into, the questions that you had, the time that it took, the expectations you had, how you felt about the whole process when it was over. And I'll simply ask them, I've done this with thousands of people around the world. I'll simply ask them then, if I were to ask you to, to, for one word, one adjective that describes that entire purchase experience, what would that word be? What do you think they say, Andy? Can I say it on the air? <laughs> <laughs> Give me the clean version. Give me some guesses. I, you, whatever you say, you're probably going to be right. Yeah, messed up. Confused. Uh, long, hard, frustrating, awful. Someone said landmine one year, and I said, you know, that's not an adjective. <laughs> and he said landmine-ish. So for 2015, <laughs> landmine-ish was my word for you. But the point being, it's again, do this. Really try this. Think about your own experience. But it's all negative. It's all frustrating. Memorably, as a head of marketing told me in a Chicago meeting I was running, she said, I, she simply said, I don't know about a word, but she says, I never want to do that again. Well, the question, I, though, that's, that's interesting about that, that comes to mind, though, is, is, as you talk about in the book, is that one of the problems, is it, let me clarify the question, is that being driven by their experience with the seller or their internal experience trying to organize to make that purchase? Because as you talk about, you know, one of the big problems is that you know, the 5.4 is the company themselves doesn't know, the purchaser themselves doesn't know who those people are. That's exactly right. So, so there's an interesting thing, right? So the follow-on question, this thought exercise, when you get to the, what's the one word you choose? And it's almost invariably negative. I think I've heard literally three positive words after doing this thousands of people around the world. But then you ask them the follow-on question was, all right, now I want you to think of that time, think of that pain, think of that frustration, that landminishness, and simply ask yourself, how much of that awful pain and frustration was due to the result of the supplier that was selling to you, and how much of it was simply your own company getting in its own way. And invariably, the conversation always goes to the latter, right? It's just, you know, it has nothing to do with this supplier versus that supplier, whether they're easy to do business with. It's that irrespective of supplier, we're just our own worst enemy when it comes to getting things done. We have the very best intentions in the world, but when we try to herd the cats of our own organization across all this diversity, it just gets so hard and so frustrating. And that's when you start thinking about the return of investment on effort and the purchase is so hard, the return would have to be massive to make that kind of effort worth it in the first place. And this is what we're finding is this really interesting narrative flip. And a lot of what we've been talking about over the last couple of years, which is, yeah, I've been on stages all over the world talking about how customers are empowered with information. We talk about selling in a world of customer empowerment. 
the keynotes we're doing now often are under the title of the end of customer empowerment because today we, we find ourselves in a world less where customers are empowered and to be sure they still are they more they still have all that access to all that information they can still learn on their own all that is true but we're finding that in many cases in more ways than one customers today are, are far less empowered than they are overwhelmed and the solution for an empowered customer and the solution for an overwhelmed customer turn out to actually be pretty different so when you say they're they're overwhelmed Meaning that there's what? There's just too much information or they can't they can't sift through it to find you know the value? There's three dimensions along which we observe this happening. One is uh, information, two is options, and three is people. So there's there's too much information, right? So there's there's just so much information to sift through. And there's a really interesting dynamic to this one, which is uh, well-documented and research far beyond CEB, uh, you know, behavioral psychologists who study this kind of stuff for a living, which is what's really interesting in a world of abundant information, which is clearly where we live today. When you go out to, to study, to research, to discover, to find an answer to a question you have, to, to do your due diligence, do your research, invariably in a world of abundant information, you will almost inevitably find more information than you had ever expected. I mean, just think about your own experience recently buying a car, for example, or buying a, mm -hmm. you know, go to, go to Amazon. He's like, I want it. This is literally true. So I, I joke most of my stories are true, and this one is, right? But the, uh, about a year ago, I wanted to buy my daughter a telescope. So I went to, you know, I just Googled telescope, went to Amazon, and like six hours later, Andy, I was still researching. I couldn't stop. And, and this is what psychologists have documented. In a world where you find more information, good information, than you ever expected, it leads you to believe that this decision is actually more important, more complex, more difficult than you originally anticipated. Therefore, you need to do more learning. And when you do more learning, naturally, you find even more information. And you get stuck in this learning cycle. It's well, like the, the, the paralysis of analysis sort of thing. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, Simon, back to Herbert Simon, did research sort of on how people make decisions in that context of being overwhelmed by sources of, of information. And you know, what he found is that people make basically an economic trade-off. There's return on, on effort, as you talk about. Yep. And at some yep. point, cut it off because it's no longer worth the additional effort. Well, you know, on top of that, the other one, so we talk about too many people. We've talked about the diversity problem, that the, you know, the lowest common denominator of let's just get this over with and figure out where we can agree. And if, it, if that means study it more or do nothing, that's what we'll do. So there's a people problem. And then the third one, is there's too many options. When every supplier is effectively bending over backwards to offer customers whatever they want in order to differentiate themselves and to be of service and be agile, nimble, you can do, you want that? We can do that. We can make that happen too. What happens is, um, uh, Barry Schwartz has written a book, a mm -hmm. well-known book and a fantastic book yep. called The Paradox Back of choice. choice. Yeah, great book. Uh, and this is what happens in a world not just of abundant information, but abundant choice. You become paralyzed in your efforts to, to choose rationally what makes the most sense. And, uh, and whatever you wind up choosing, you don't think so much about the good things of the thing you chose, but the bad things or the exactly. good things and stuff you didn't choose. And you always wind up disappointed. You always wind up frustrated. Right. This is the environment. So when I say customers are overwhelmed, these are sort of the three dynamics leading to that uh, overwhelmedness, I guess. <laughs> well, interesting. Now, to, in one perspective that I, I like about decision making organizations, and uh, Jeffrey Colvin in his book "Talent Overrated," you know, had this this phrase where he say, "You know, companies view their ability to gather information and make decisions quickly as a strategic advantage." These days, I mean, are you sensing that? Because you know, people want to be able to not deliberate. Yeah, you know, a year to make a purchase decision on something they could make the good enough decision in six months and get the value from implementing it. Well, this is where I think the narrative actually it gets uh, one really interesting. And also, personally, I think kind of dark, right? I, or at least, uh, or at least a little bit um, dark might be overstated, but it's, it's it's sobering. There's a good word for it, right? You know, because what's interesting 
is here at CEB, uh, so as I mentioned before, I work in the sales and marketing practice. We work with heads of sales and marketing, but we also have uh, an IT practice, an HR practice, a finance practice. Again, they work with the heads of those respective Mm -hmm. functions. One of the things, Andy, we found recently in our IT function uh, or our IT practice working with heads of IT is effectively this exact same phenomenon, but not about buying, but about projects and managing projects and getting things done. Um, it led to a bunch of really neat research over in that part of our business uh, referring to what we call clock speed because it was written by a bunch of IT guys. Of mm-hmm. course, they call it that, right? But the, right. The, the clock speed of an organization um, and how it's slowing down and how things are getting gummed up. And the reason why I mention that is is again, all of our work here at CEB Sales and Marketing is through the lens of a purchase decision and selling into that environment. But it that is indicative uh, of a much more sort of just intractable problem of just companies slowing down, getting gummed up, think, decision-making taking longer, things slowing down for all the reasons we've been talking about. And so going full circle back to your original point slash question is that you absolutely, the, the company, it, it, the, the, the premium that this phenomenon that this reality places on agility is massive, right? Because the company that can figure out how in this kind of environment where every company's bogged down across all of these kinds of decision-making, the kind of company that can figure out how can we move just a little bit faster, a little bit more streamlined, and not just at the lowest common denominator level, but actually making higher quality decisions with less a resource expense is, is potentially at a massive advantage in this kind of environment. And then the last question that sort of follows along with that then is how do how do you sell to help them achieve that? You know, so they can make decisions with least less investment of time and money and effort. Well, you know, it, it's funny. This is the neat thing about working at a research organization is we. I mean this quite sincerely. We learn along with everybody else. So. Yeah, so we know more things about Challenger today than we ever did when we first published the first book, The Challenger Sale, back in, what, 2011. But the heart and soul of The Challenger Sale, this idea that there are these five profiles of reps, uh, and the, the profile most likely to win is the Challenger rep who's out challenging mm-hmm. customers to think differently. And the, the DNA of it, and we often tell people it's not the profile that matters, it's the behaviors, right? So it's not like, exactly. are you a challenger, but rather, irrespective of what profile you think you are, what are the Challenger reps doing so differently that you can do too? And the answer to that question is, is these sort of three high-level behaviors, which we've come to call teach, tailor, take control. Teach the customer something new about their business to do it in a tailored fashion, which we now appreciate to be that doesn't just connect those stakeholders to you, but connects them to each other and a bigger vision of the 5.4 problem we've already talked about. But this third element, take control, when we originally found it and talked about it, we talked about it largely as taking control of sort of the commercial conversation to bring the view back to off of price and onto value to, to negotiation techniques and skills is largely what we focus on in book number one. Where we're at now with take control, back to your question, is what we're finding in this world of customers overwhelmed with purchase difficulty is there's a whole nother element that we've now since found in our research around your the opportunity for you as a seller, not just to help uh, your customer think differently about what they buy, which is arguably core challenger, uh, uh, but also how they buy, which is sort of this new idea of um, teaching your customers how to go down that purchase journey, which is so hard and so long and so overwhelming and so full of landmines. We as sellers actually are better able to anticipate the challenges our customers are going to run into on that buying journey than our customers themselves in most cases. Right? We should be able to because we've done it before. It's exactly right. So whereas our customers are buying this thing oftentimes for the very first time, if everything goes right with the world, we've sold it many times. And for that matter, we haven't sold it many times. We've watched customers wipe out. We've watched customers successfully cross the finish line. We know where they run in trouble. We know that if you bring this person in late, you're going to get stuck. So you should bring them in earlier. And when you bring them in, you should ask them these kinds of questions. 
So it really raises an opportunity for the sale for the seller rep or organization to take control of the purchase process in a very diplomatic, professional way, but essentially becoming uh, a guide and provide uh, the roadmap. To- to provide the roadmap, to map the minefield, as I like to say, to yeah. essentially be prescriptive in how to buy. There's there's a really interesting metaphor to this, which is a real story. It plays out in, in, in some really dramatic ways, which is um, uh, it's a story about travel agents and the travel agency industry, which was, of course, almost decimated 1997, somewhere around there, right? When the, the World Wide Web really took off, you could now learn on your own. Information was available as a consumer. You didn't need a travel agency anymore. They essentially went out of business, very much like we're seeing in the world of customers learning on their own today. But if you fast forward to today, what's interesting is travel agents today are actually making a huge and dramatic, well-documented comeback as an industry. And the reason why is because at some point we hit a tipping point where information availability was empowering to now today. If you think about trying to book a trip today, there's so much information, it's actually overwhelming. There's trip sites and hotel sites and travel sites and flying sites and mm-hmm. review sites. It's like, oh my God, it's like so hard. You know what would be amazing, Andy? If I could just pick up the phone and call somebody and have them tell me what to do, that would be amazing. So one of the questions <laughs> that we asked today is, how can you as a seller become the travel agent to your customer and guide them through that? Become the sort of the, the guide to them uh, across not just around what to buy, but how to buy. And that's uh, huge opportunities here. Oh, I love it. That's a great, a great way of looking at it. So, Brent, we're in the last segment of my show. I've got some standard questions I ask all my guests. And uh, the first one is, is a hypothetical scenario in which you, Brent, have just been hired as VP of sales at a company whose sales have stalled out. And they're anxious to get things turned around, unstuck, back on track. So your first week on the job, what two things could you do that would have the biggest impact? I want to know the answer to two questions. Uh, the first question I want to know is, what are our unique strengths? And, and by that, effectively, what are the things, uh, the aspects of our capabilities, solutions, that not just the products and services we sell, but the whole range of capabilities that we can bring to bear as an organization that, that don't just uh, map our strengths, but our unique strengths? Uh, the, 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 one of the ways we talk about this original challenger work is, is a very simple question. I call it the Deb Oler questions at GM at, uh, at Granger. Um, where I first heard this question simply, which is, why should our customers buy from us over anyone else? Mm-hmm. That is that is a crucial question because that allows you, by the way, to, to apply this idea of teaching customers about their business without falling into the free consulting trap of having them take that idea and just shop it out in an, in a, in an RFP, right? right. So they, I got to teach them something about their business in a way that leads them back to my unique strengths. I can't do that unless I know what my unique strengths are. So the first thing I want to know is what are our, our, not just our strengths, but our unique strengths. The second thing I want to know is, what is it that our customers don't know about their business but should? So what is it that our customers don't know about their business but should? Because what what are the opportunities for them to make money, save money, mitigate risk, penetrate new markets in ways that they haven't fully appreciated? Because if I understand that, if I understand their company better than they do, that offers me an opportunity to challenge their thinking, to teach them diplomatically, professionally something new that if I do it well, will lead back to my unique strengths. And it's the combination of those two things that, that become the foundational for everything else. Very interesting. Very interesting. So do you have a, uh, just to follow up on that last one is, so for people listening and say, okay, well, that's, <laughs> that sounds great. How do I, how do I put that in a question to the customer? I, to the, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, there. That is. It's funny because I, I was working on a, a big presentation with a colleague today, uh, where we're getting after that. You know, at the very least, 
the, we're going to run out of time on that one, Andy. But let me just give you a, <laughs> a, a so you, you guys got another couple hours. But it, it, here's a here's a short version. See if I can do this briefly. It really it means rethinking customer understanding as a as an as a function as a as a as a capability inside an organization. So I don't know that there is. So your question is, what's the one question or the question I could ask customers to figure that out? I don't know that there is one question, but it is a capability. Um, and a set of questions and, and that we need to create inside of an organization that allow us to go out and ask that. And the reason why I say that is probably owned by marketing. But today, we often ask customers lots of questions. But the questions we ask customers today are largely based on things like, um, will you recommend us? Are you satisfied with us? Are you happy with the service you received from us? What are three things you do to suggest that we could be better? But notice all of those, um, uh, why did you buy from us? Uh, why did you not buy from us? Well, even in a pre-sale, the questions are usually designed to get a yes that lines with some sort of feature or product benefit. True. But you notice what they're all about. Every one of those questions is about us. It's mm-hmm. about the customer's perception of us as a supplier. Uh, now, what's interesting is if you want to understand the customer's business better than they understand it themselves, what's the first thing you so think about implicitly? Tease that out a little bit. What do you have to understand about the customer's If you want to understand the customer's business better than they understand it themselves, one of the first things you have to know is how do they understand their business? Which means you need to start asking questions about how do you see your business? What are your top priorities? What are what do you think are the drivers of those priorities? What is your plan right now to achieve those priorities? Because unless we call this a mental model, and in the challenger customer, which I think is where our conversation started today, mm-hmm. we actually walk through this in great detail in chapter three and four. We get into this whole idea of what we've come to call mental modeling, which is right. what is the customer's mental model, how they think their business works right now. Because once you build that mental model, then you can break that mental model diplomatically. But you can step back and ask, what they miss? What they overlook? What they get wrong? So it's less that I'm not, I didn't answer your, I answered no, your no, question. No, no, I, I wasn't looking for the way. answer. It's more, your real answer is, you know, how do you, what's the process to come up with the questions that really you can ask that, because most sales reps, yeah, they're not on their own. They're not going to be able to do that, right? They're going to need some sort of assistance, as you said, marketing or or somebody to help them with that. But what's interesting is no one's doing that right now. I I don't mean that in an unfair sort of way, but there's there's it's so interesting whether sales or marketing, virtually all of our efforts around in the name of customer understanding or customer experience are really designed to get after customers' understanding of us or, or, or to understand customers' view of us or to understand customers' experience with us. Very little of it, and certainly not systematically, is designed to understand how customers think about themselves. Well, and, the, uh, and that is a crucial shift. Right. And I think the thing that's really interesting about the examples that you gave, because it, it aligns with something that I talk about, which is what you were talking about, the examples you're giving were very, I call them aspirational, right? It's about what you want to achieve. And I think we get so hung up talking about solving pain points as opposed to saying, look, where do you want to be? And I think, I think that's a huge perspective difference. So if you're going to get the customer to sort of talk about their business and how they understand if they don't understand how they can get from point A to point B, that's that's something they don't know about their business. Well, you know, it's interesting. So even if we were, let's give let's give us all some credit. Uh, just uh, play out the thought experiment. Say, because um, there might be individuals on the phone or you know listening to the podcast. They say, well, I ask that all the time. Where do you want to be? But here's an interesting follow up question. Because oftentimes, if, even if you ask it, and they say, well, here's where we want to be in five years. That your inclination almost immediately, particularly as a seller, say, let me show you how we can help you get there. Because right? it's, like, it's like, so it's like, okay, I heard their need. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna fill that need with my product, my feature. But what if we asked a different question, which is, okay, where where would you like to be in five years? Let's say that's the question, and then ask, how do you 
plan to get there? What is your strategy to get there? And you know, and and then, and but and then keep digging it. So and say, okay, that's your strategy. Now, how does this relate to that? How does this? You know, how, tell me the, the the causal link between this and you. Know, you want to essentially draw this again, what we call a mental model, but a roadmap of of their strategy, the the, the drivers of that strategy, the secondary drivers, the things that all kind of work together. Map out that system, and then again, then the question isn't all right. How can our product help you make that happen? It's a very different question, which is, what did they get wrong? What did they overlook? What did mm-hmm. they miss? How could we break this? Uh, and again, this is not something you can do this live, but this is something if you can orient the entire commercial organization around to, around this kind of mentality, this is what Challenger uh, is really ultimately all about. And it's incredibly productive when the lessons from it are delivered, again, diplomatically, empathetically, professionally, to help that customer understand what they're missing is exactly what they're looking for from not just a supplier, but arguably from all that learning they're doing on their own, too. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, I've got a couple of rapid-fire questions for you. You can be one well, that was a rapid-fire, Eddie? Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've got two hours. What are you talking about? So, so who's, you know, you've been working in this field for a long time. So who, who's your sales role model? Um. Mm. Keep in mind, I am in the uh, I am in the business of selling ideas personally, that. right? So, um, the my uh, that's no one's ever asked me this before. The first person that popped into my mind immediately was Steve Jobs, and that's almost unfair because we all say that because we all admire him. And it's also unfair because he actually wasn't a seller, but he was he was a seller of ideas, oh, wasn't he? Absolutely. And what he did is he broke our mental model consistently, and that's why I think we all love him. He's like. It's the old Henry Ford thing. It's like if I had given the customer what they wanted, I'd make better horses. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when the iPhone came out, <laughs> no one even like I, I don't know about you, but I didn't even know it was possible. Right? He, right. he he taught me something new about my world, about my life, things that I and once I saw it, it was like obvious. Like oh, how could I have, how could I have overlooked that? How could I have not known this? How could I have missed this? And that's that's what I find is the heart and soul of Challenger, and so that's what I admire. Okay, excellent. So. What's one book other than any of your own that you would recommend every salesperson should read? Oh my God! You should have teed me up with these in advance. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. That's that's what makes it fun. <laughs> oh, oh God! A book that everyone should read. It doesn't it doesn't even need to be a sales book. Oh no! I was well past that a long time ago. Uh, huh. Yeah, give me the next one. Let me pass on that and come back. It's not there. There's. It is. You know what? It, I don't know that I have an answer for you. Okay. But 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 it is. It whatever it is, it's hopefully something that gets you to say, "Huh, I never thought of it that way before." And that to me is what matters most. And so whatever that book is for me may not be that book for someone else, but anything that expands your thinking that gets you out of the. The, the envelope that we all naturally live right. in is, is crucial. Cool. Well, How's good, that great, for a non, that's a non-answer answer. Well, I'll send you my second book. That, it, that makes people think. Okay. Um, <laughs> well done. So last question for you. This is, this is a tough one. Is what music's on your playlist right now? Um, I've got, uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. I've got OAR and Dave Matthews loaded up in my car CD player and they mm-hmm. just go on instant re- or a con- continuous repeat along with Monty Montgomery. Um, I don't know if that makes me old and out of date probably, but, um, <laughs> no. uh, but yeah, anything, but you know what I like? Cause I, I'm a singer. I've been singing my whole life, but what I've come to appreciate about music is, um, is talent. Uh, by the way, I think that's probably true with anything, right? Sure. In, in whatever craft or profession you're talking about, whether it's any kind of music, and I think that's what I really appreciate. When you hear a musician 
and you, irrespective of genre, you think, wow, they're just so talented. That's what I enjoy. Yeah. I mean, I was just talking about this on podcast last week with somebody else. I saw Springsteen last week in New Jersey. Yeah. And guys, almost 67. He'll be 67 by the time this episode airs. He'll be 67. Crazy. I was thinking back to the first time I'd seen him, which had been 35 years before that. And he played, the concert was longer this time. It set a record for the longest Springsteen concert. Played wow. four hours, just shy of four hours. Never left the stage except to go sing in the middle of the audience. I mean, basically it was on for four hours. Such commitment, intensity, and craft. It was incredible. You know, uh, uh, for those who haven't checked, it's, it's kind of a shame because it's, it's almost jumped the shark. For those of you who need to look that up, phrase up, you can. But the, for many years, there's a, <laughs> there was a podcast uh, from uh, Daryl Hall of Hall and yes. Oates called Live from Daryl's House. Oh, there's a TV show as well. It's it 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 Well, that's about the time it jumped the shark is when it became a TV show. But it's still, it's still good. But for right. many years, it was just on the web, and it was amazing. And most of those old back episodes – um, are now off of the website, but you can still find them on YouTube. And he would bring in unknown artists. He'd bring in famous artists. He's still very much like he does today, but I'll tell you, um, it was that collaboration. Because again, when you watch those episodes, you see natural talent exposed in some really cool ways. Uh, and that that was fabulous. Yeah. Well, Brent, it's been great talking to you. Um, tell people how they can find out more about you know, CEB and connect with you. Fantastic, Andy. Thank you for uh, the time and the opportunity, and, and cheers to everyone out there. Uh, so how can they reach you? Uh, they can, uh, they can reach us, uh, at, uh, cebglobal.com, uh, and, uh, uh, through our, uh, various memberships. So, or you can Google the sales leadership council or the marketing leadership council. If you want to get into, to, uh, specific websites. Okay. Well, great. Well, Brett, thanks for joining me again. And remember friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And easy way to do that is to make this podcast accelerate part of your daily routine, listen on your commute in the gym, or make it part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Brent Adamson, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your sales. So thanks for joining me until next time. This is Andy Paul. Good selling everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com.